Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. And uh, my guest today is uh, Michael Corda, uh, author by, uh, of Charmed Lives, the life of the three uh, crazy Hungarian movie people, uh, beginning with his father, uh, who, Vincent, who, who won a, an Academy Award for The Thief of Baghdad. Uh, Correct. Uh, Uncle uh, Zoltan, who made uh, Cry the Beloved Country, and, and my favorite, the uh, the Four Feathers, and uh, and Ele Alexander, who all but invented the uh, movie industry in England. Uh, he's also, as I mentioned, Charmed Lives, which is uh, his first, if I believe, it was your first real book, uh, if we can say that. Uh, followed by uh, U.S. Grant, uh, about forty titles, including Tia. Uh, uh, T.E. Lawrence, uh, which is kind of falls in the in the chronology of what we're going to be talking about today. Absolutely. And, and was also, uh, in addition to being editor in chief at Simon and Schuster, uh, following uh, one legend, Bob si Bob uh, Gottlieb, and you will probably be remembered as another legend as time goes on. Uh, well, you were I also hope so. you were also Graham Greene chauffeur. Uh, I was Graham Greene chauffeur. Oh, you're not his friend, despite the difference in our age. Well, you started um, out as a chauffeur. Yes, started out as a chauffeur in the south of France in Altib. Um And uh, uh, for many, many decades, his editor and publisher. And the book we're going to talk about today is Muse of Fire, about the First World War and specifically about the poets who came out of that. Um, as an American, I mean, a, a Native American, unlike you, who are a, a, a refugee, <laughs> we know very we know very little about the Great War or World WW1, as we called it. Yet here in Europe, it remains ingrained in the hearts and, and minds of, of everyone. There isn't a village or a hamlet of uh, 30 people. It has, doesn't have a statue, a memorial around one of the Rampoins, uh, mentioning all of these children who died in that in that horrible war. So why is the, this war so important to you? And why at this stage in your life did you decide to write the book? Well, I've always wanted to write a book about the First World War. I, I, I covered the Civil War in my biographies of Ulysses Grant and, my, and Robert E. Lee. Um, and I covered uh, the, uh, uh, the Eastern um, part of the First World War in my biography of T. Lawrence. Um, uh, but I had not written directly about the First World War, which I always wanted to do. Um, and on the other hand, nobody wants to or needs to sit down and write another history of the First World War because there's probably um, no more uh, written about event in history than the First World War. Uh, and indeed, parts of it, like the question of how it started and who was responsible for it starting. Um, uh, th these are these are still being debated, still being written about. Um, archives are still being printed and published. Uh, so it was uh, a, a a thought that occurred to me that you can tell the First World War also by the lives of the First World War soldier poets, um, and that they fit into the uh, chronology of the war uh, perfectly um, in their lives and in some cases their deaths. And also 
that, and this is the most remarkable thing, that although everything was censored coming out of the First World War and very heavily censored, writings, photographs, and so forth, um, uh, the First World War poets, their work was not censored. People did not consider poetry important enough to censor it. Thus, uh, the most realistic picture we have of what the First World War was like for those who fought in it uh, comes from reading their poetry and reading about their lives. Well, you've, you've selected five to talk about, but first off, what is it about, uh, you, you mentioned poetry, not being, I, I, my, my opinion was probably much more appreciated in those days than it certainly is today. The Second World War, we had the Ernie Piles and Edward R. Murrow and his group, uh, you know, journalists, if you will, photographers like uh, the other great Hungarian, uh, Bob Kappa. Uh, Bob Kappa. But uh, that being said, uh, not a lot of poetry came out of that war. What was it about that time period um, that made it so ripe for poetry? And why were these guys so good at it? Well, and we can I talk about them individually in a second. Yeah, surely. I think that um, uh, the turn of the century, that is um, the, the uh, 20th century, um, was a period at which poetry was still important to people at at every literary level. I mean, Kipling's poems sold in numbers that today could only be equaled by huge best-selling novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Rupert Brooke, uh, who is one of my poets, um, his books sold in enormous quantities. Uh, magazines and newspapers published well, across socioeconomic lines. Was poetry something in the minds of the coal miner in Wales? More than you might suppose, yes. Because poetry was a live art in the 19th century. Um, uh, Today, very little poetry is actually... I mean, it was being performed. Yeah. Um, But today, very little poetry is being written in the first place. And in the second place, there's almost no place to publish it. Mm -hmm. um, and that was not true in those days. That's why I say Kipling crossed class lines and crossed educational lines and was a major bestseller. And people read his poems and memorized them. And whether coal miners in Wales did, I don't know. But then the Welsh, of course, are a very poetic people and they have their own po- Well, they also poetry. like to sing. They have that going yes. with Exactly. Um, and... So it was at a point in time when poetry still had an enormous impact on people um, uh, in a way which is hard for us to conceive because it certainly has not since that time. Well, you selected you selected five people, uh, Rupert Brooke, uh, an American, Alan Seeger, who became part of the French Foreign Legion, Isaac Rosenberg, Seeger Sassoon, another Jew, but uh, whatever, uh, and, uh, and Wilfred Owen. So why don't we just yeah. take them in a sequence in which I brought it out. Uh, who was Rupert sure. Brooke and what made him such a great poet for you? Well, I think, um, and let me say at once that I am not uh, a literary critic or indeed a student of poetry. Um, and um, I don't pretend to be And the book is not um, 
a book about. Well, let me just stop you for a quick poetry. second, Michael, because that, that's why the book is so accessible. I'm not a huge, I mean, poetry to me is uh, Frank Lesser and uh, Lawrence Hart. But <laughs> that being said, uh, the uh, approach of talking about the individual lives, uh, it, it, I think is much more accessible to a lot of readers who may not be, may not get the poetry, but they get the story. So now I've interrupted I so. you, let me bring you back to no, what you started to say. Not at all. But I start with Rupert Brooke because it gives me an opportunity to, to write about late Edwardian England um, during the period of peace uh, before the First World War, say from 1910 to 1914. Mm -hmm. um, and Rupert Brooke became, during those years, um, not only one of the most productive poets, in, in, in English literature, but also one of the most glamorous. I mean, he was uh, stunningly good-looking. W.B. Yeats called him the best-looking young man in England, and Yeats was right. Um, he had something of the glamour and the fame um, um, of a rock star like Mick Jagger um, mm. in his day. Um, and um, uh, and through his life, through his early years, I'm able to tell the story of what England and Europe was like in those years before the First World War, when it was thought imaginable, that unimaginable rather, that there would ever be another war. Um, and so I very much wanted to paint the portrait of the world that existed before August 1914, because without that, you don't have any real sense of what a tremendous blow the war was and what a precipitous fall it it it, it involved um and i do that to the life of Rupert uh, whose poetry is by the way by and large enormously accessible um and so i think people reading brook um will get real pleasure out of it in perhaps an unexpected way he was a terrific poet. Um, he was uh, the first, one of the first to join up, and of course, one of the first to die. He saw it somewhat as an adventure, if, I'm, if I, my reading is correct. Yes, yes. Um, uh, uh, he he sought adventure in the most curious of ways, which is that although he was already famous as a poet, um, and incredibly glamorous. Um, uh, he, uh, he fled from the numerous problems of his love life and his relationship with his mother uh, uh, on a, a trip to Tahiti where he uh, uh, took a uh, Tahitian um, young woman as his mistress and lived um, the, the kind of life that people suppose Gauguin lived when he fled to Tahiti. Um, so in that year before the war broke out, uh, uh, Brooke became a kind of world-class adventurer and wrote wonderfully about it, both in prose and in his poems. And uh, then we, in his life, we go to 1915 and... Uh... I guess you would call it Winston's mistake, uh, Gallipoli. Uh, it wasn't just 
Oh no, yeah, complicit. No, I'm a big, I'm a big Churchill fan. I don't mean to denigrate the, my no. man. Um, it, it, um, the results were terrible. It was a terrible mistake. Um, and, um, and, and it, it certainly, um, uh, a strategic mistake, but an understandable one. If you look at the map, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the thing that is most obvious is that, um, fighting on the Western Front was never going <clears throat> with any measurable period to change anything um, because the Germans had seized high ground after the Battle of the Marne um, and held it uh, more or less through the next four years. Um, and uh, uh, the Russian army, enormous as, as it was, was already beginning to collapse. Um, so <clears throat> the only uh, third possibility um, was to fight in the Middle East and defeat uh, the, the the Ottoman Empire. Um, uh, so the thought is not um, a, a, a an, an unlikely or unusual one. It's simply that the British in general, and Winston Churchill in particular, underestimated the ability of the Ottoman army to fight back. And and that's and then which we lost him in that war, Mr. Brook. Yes, yes, he died. Um, he he was not killed in battle. He never managed to get to the battle. He died before it began. He would almost certainly have died in it. Of all the officers in his battalion of the Royal Navy Division, which was more or less an invention of Winston Churchill's, um, and <clears throat> only two um, survived. 1915, um, uh, and uh, all the rest were killed, um, uh, which was also the pattern for the war that would emerge after 1915. Um, the numbers of killed are astonishing. Um, and, you know, still today, um, as you say, in every village in France and in every town and village in England, and certainly in every English college and school, the lists of the dead for the First World War are enormous. I, Goodbye, I, Mr. Own... Chips. I'm sorry? Goodbye, Mr. Chips. I'm looking at Robert Donat. Uh, yes. Where he's losing his kids in school that uh, yes. went off to die. Well, you know, the numbers are simply astonishing because I, I, I believe that, I'm, that my own college at Oxford, Maudlin College, um, mm -hmm. Uh, lost during the First World War, 600 um, uh, modern uh, men were killed during the war, uh, and 22 were killed during the Second World War. <laughs> and that kind of proportion is true of of almost everywhere. Um, the, the numbers in the First World War are simply amazing. Yeah, I mean, frightening if you if you look at. Uh, there's a scene uh, that. Sometimes isn't even left in the film in Chariots of Fire when Abrams and his colleague arrive at, at Cambridge, and is and there are there are one or two guys on the platform without a leg, without an arm, yep. looking the, to get the, their the bag. Porters, yes, yeah, the to porters. take them. One of and, them has, I mean, I've one... seen it on TV, and occasionally it's not there. I don't know why they would get rid of it, but you know, it, it, it's 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 a it's a quick a quick moment, but it establishes 
a, a certain reality about life and, and I guess it was 1923, 1924, you know, in English. Yes, absolutely. Yes, there's a man who's a porter <clears throat> and who's draws an artificial draw. It's a mm. whole metal contraption put in the place of his real draw, which has been shot off. Yeah, we have the, uh, the uh, Museum of the First World War here in Mo, uh, and there's some of those contraptions and devices that yeah. are that are there. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, then we move on to the next one. This is uh, Pete Seeger's uh, uncle, Uncle Alan, who uh, yes. what, uh, the only American in the group you're talking about, who goes off to join the French Foreign Legion. So let's talk about yes. Alan Seeger. Well, I included Alan Seeger, not necessarily because I wanted an American in the group. In fact, that that that's... Not what I wanted at all. At the front door. Sorry about that. Um, okay. Alexa um, is announcing things constantly. Um, uh, but because um, uh, most of the English soldier poets in whom I was interested were officers, mm-hmm. and I needed to show what life was like um, for people who were, as we say in England, other ranks, uh, that is to say, ordinary soldiers. Um, uh, one was Isaac Rosenberg, mm-hmm. um, who was an ordinary soldier. Um, and I put Seeger in because he joined the French Foreign Legion early yeah. on um, and lived a life in the ranks. How early so was it? Is this I, prior, I'm sorry, is this prior to the war or just at the outbreak of the war? I, and it was right after the outbreak of the war. Okay. Um, he was... Um, he was in, in London at the time trying to get his poems published uh, unsuccessfully and meet his father um, and went back and um, uh, joined the French Foreign Legion uh, and um, uh, he is the last of the soldier poets who saw in the war an opportunity for glory and saw in it also um, a kind of heroism and nationalism, which began to seep out after the Battle of Verdun with the losses that were so enormous. I believe it's something like <clears throat> 400,000 on the French side and 300,000 on the German. Unimaginable, Unimaginable numbers. numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I like Seeger, and I think Seeger, Seeger's early life is interesting. You know, his roommate at Harvard was T.S. Eliot. Um, and it's interesting to think of T.S. Eliot and Alan Seeger uh, um, being roommates together um, and, uh, and of what the world was like before the war, uh, mm-hmm. which, which is very much, I want the reader to take away a sense of what the world was like before this cataclysmic war. Um, and so it, it matters to me how these people lived before 1914. Well, getting back to, to Cigarette, as he came from a certainly a comfortable family financially, went to Harvard. Very. Why uh, why did he want to be a quote-unquote a grunt as opposed to being an officer? I mean, I, I, how many guys out of Oxford or, or Cambridge uh, went into the, uh, the troops, the rack, as you describe it? Well, very few. But you have to remember that Seeger was an American in France. Um, there's almost no way in which he could have become a French officer, even if even had he wanted to. And the French uh, uh, were worried about Americans joining the, uh, the French forces who were sympathetic to the French cause. America was, of course, still neutral. Um, 
because um, uh, they risked losing their American citizenship, um, but they would not gain French citizenship, so they would become basically men without a country. The advantage of the Legion was that you signed on not to France, but to the Legion. In mm. fact, I think the Legion's motto is the Legion is our homeland. Um, and so they didn't risk losing their American citizenship. Um, and quite a number of Americans, therefore, joined the French Foreign Legion. And then those who survived uh, very often moved into the French army proper after the United States joined the war. Um, uh, but but Seeger was uh, um, an enthusiast for the French Foreign Legion. And I described what that was like physically, what the training was like. Uh, it was uh, an incredible level of hardship and uh, deprivation. Um, and, <clears throat> Um, and Seeger writes about it um, with a really lighthearted acceptance of what sounds to us like a, a, an existence that is scarcely above the animal, the trenches, the lice, the rats, um, uh, uh, no man's land strewn with unburied bodies, um, the awful food. Uh, he, he writes about it better than almost anybody else that I can think of. Um, and I came to like Seeger and also to appreciate his poetry. You know, I describe in uh, Muse of Fire that when uh, uh, John Kennedy was elected um, junior senator from, from Massachusetts, he was interviewed for CBS. And one of the first questions he was asked was, who is your favorite poet? Um, and he replied instantly that his favorite poet was Alan Seeger and quoted the line. Um, uh, I have a rendezvous no, with the, death. I have, a, I have a rendezvous with death. On, on, uh, uh, on some disputed on, barricade. And some disputed barricade. I took notes. I'm not instantly. that smart. <laughs> <laughs> instantly. I mean, I don't know how, how many senators um, today could quote instantly a line of poetry, probably none of them. None, no. Um, and, and none of the people who were interviewing any of them on television would ask that question anyway. But but Kennedy instantly went and got a copy of Alan Seeger um, mm. um, from the shelf and, and read from it. And I wanted to include that in the book because uh, Kennedy had that sense of the drama of poetry and the meaning mm -hmm. of poetry and appreciated Seeger very much for what he was. Well, Kennedy made it, I guess, as an accomplishment, he made it uh, cool for kids like me at 13 to chase girls by knowing about books and poetry, not just hitting yeah. the baseball. You know, it was, yeah. and suddenly it was cool, you know. Of course, whatever works. Well, yeah, exactly. But you just added it to the, uh, to the battery of weapons that you had in your, uh, you know, in your quiver. Uh, and then we go, you mentioned uh, Isaac Rosenberg. Uh, so let's talk about Isaac, who was also a painter, a sketcher, uh, and is probably yes. almost totally unknown except for your book now. Well, I think he's rather unknown. He's better known in England than he is in the United States. But he is uh, a remarkable 
example of somebody who was both an accomplished painter um, and a brilliant poet um, mm. uh, and whose life is um, was amazingly difficult and tough. Um, uh, it gave me an opportunity to write about where the Rosenbergs came from because the Rosenbergs um, came from Russia um, where uh, Jews were obliged to live in the pale, that area of Russia uh, that basically comprises what is now um, Belarus uh, and parts of the Ukraine and parts of Poland and were forbidden to live outside the pale. Um, when uh, Rosenberg's father moved to Moscow to open a kosher uh, butcher shop, um, uh, he, he was closed down by the police because as a Jew, he had no right to be in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And the Russian police hounded him down uh, all the way to Siberia, um, even though they must have had more important things um, to do. Um, and I wanted, therefore, to describe how terrible uh, life was in the Pale for Jews at that period and how impossible it was um, to improve it and how the only thing that they could do was to leave it. And in in the Rosenberg's case, uh, he and his um, wife fled to England. Um, and uh, Isaac uh, uh, attracted enormous attention because of his ability as a, as a, as a young artist and a painter. Um, and it wasn't until um, uh, shortly before the war that he began to attract attention as a poet. Um, uh, he's a very interesting figure and, um, and some of the strongest poetry to come out of the First World War, I think. Well, how do you see him? In your book, there's a, a several images, a, a, a drawing that he did in the trenches, uh, a sketch <clears> or a page, portrait of his father. Uh, how would you look at him as a, as a painter? How would you evaluate him as a painter? Well, I'm not equipped. I'm 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 really not equipped well, to be an art, art art a judge of art. But I I I I like his painting enormously, mm -hmm. <laughs> and for that matter, um, Rupert Brooke admired it because Edward Marsh, um, <clears throat> Winston Churchill's secretary. secretary, who <clears throat> edited millions of words of Churchill's, uh, was a great art collector. Um, and a uh, uh, and a great judge of poetry, um, and collect and and really singled out Rosenberg and put one of his paintings in his guest bedroom in London, um, and Brooke uh, ad admired it when he saw it. So the connections between these people mm -hmm. are very strong and, and very interesting to me. Well, Mar Marsh, as you as you point out, was very helpful and instrumental in cases to many many of these guys. Uh, Marsh is amazing. Um, Marsh is amazing. Um, and I, I, I knew that he was Churchill's secretary, but everything you're writing about is totally new to me. So I've, yeah, I've learned something. It's, it, well, good. That's what that's what that's what book That's why you wrote it. Michael. You had me in mind. Exactly. But he was also a, he was also a closeted homosexual. And I, I don't yeah. know, you know, uh, in this in this group uh, somewhere 
totally homosexual, some are bisexual. I don't know if anybody was totally straight in the way that we would describe being straight in, let's say, 1960. Uh, I don't know that I'm looking for some connection, but is there something about the fact that many of these people had to be closeted, that this that they connected with each other and, and supported each other? Or in Marsha's case, is it just a recognition of talent? I, I think that, first of all, um, uh, uh, it, in Marsha's case, his talent um, and his admiration for attractive um, uh, young artists and poets um, is obviously um, these two things are very connected. Yet at the same time, Marsh was a major figure in the English civil service um, uh, and throughout his life um, um, uh, was close to people with great power. Um, uh, I think that uh, the the world in which um, these people lived was a world that um, was intensely um, bisexual, as it, um, uh, and that most of the people in this book um, um, had homosexual relationships. But also, if they lived, emerged to have marriages and and um, and straight relationships. Um, uh, I've tried to untangle them all in this book, but it, of course, it's 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 always very complicated because there's so many people with so many people, so many lovers involved. Well, it didn't seem like, from his perspective, this was something predatory. He wasn't. He recognized their talent. He was in support of their talent. Um, doesn't seem like they were. He was having ongoing sexual relationships with all, with, or any, with all of these poets. And I mean, not that it's important. I just was trying to see what you know what was going on there, as opposed Most to what, you know what going on in America. We have oh, about. I, I, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I absolutely agree with you. I think that Marsh um, uh, was passionately in love with Rupert Brooke, mm -hmm. um, but. It was never consummated, never spoken about, and never discussed between them. Um, mind you, um, the line um, would go around the block of people who were passionately in love with Rupert Brooke, so it's not unusual. Um, but, um, uh, uh, but I think that the the uh, the intensity of the these people's work had a kind of merit and strength of its own mm -hmm. um and that um uh that marsh was perhaps the person who most understood what the first war poets were aiming at and what they were trying to say even though as churchill's editor and and assistant um he would not have been politically in sympathy with their view of the war. And mm -hmm. I think that that's something to explore also, that that this, there, there were many people, and Marsh was one of them, who could see how terrible the war was, but were not passionately <clears throat> involved in trying to end the war. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think that that comes very clear in the lives of people like Robert Graves um, and of Siegfried Sassoon. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the most moving things I've seen is that there was a Siegfried Sassoon show at the Jewish Museum in New York on Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. And Maggie and I went to see it. It was amazing. I mean, just enormous and fascinating. Uh, but one of the things that really was wonderful was to see Siegfried Sassoon's pocket notebooks, which were made to fit exactly into the tunic uh, pocket of his uniform, in which he had written his poems with a fountain pen in minuscule, tiny handwriting, and also his whole declaration against the war, written in two pages in handwriting that you would have needed a magnifying glass to read. And it was very moving to see them sitting there and to realize that so much of what we're reading was written in the trenches in candlelight under a blanket when you were able to get a candle. Uh, almost all the important um, uh, poems and letters of people like Isaac Rosenberg and Alan Seeger and Siegfried Sassoon were written that way under these unimaginable conditions. We have about five minutes, so we're not going to be able to do everything I would have wanted to. <laughs> uh, you give good answers. Uh, but well, let's let's talk about Sassoon, you know, the, the Baghdadi uh, Sephardic Jewish family that came to England. Uh, there's a, a connection between Wilfred Owen, who was a great admirer uh, of Sassoon, and you mentioned Robert Graves. Uh, see if we can't tie those three, or at least the first two together, before we get a closing comment from you. Well, first of all, Graves, Sassoon, um, and Owen fit together because uh, their um, uh, th their lives in the war came in 1917 and 1918. Um, uh, I have chosen to end the book with what to me is the story that makes the most sense of it, which is that Wilfred Owen was killed a week before the armistice was signed and that his mother received the telegram informing her of his death at 11 a.m. on November 11, oh, 1918, God. as the bells were ringing all over England to celebrate the signing of the armistice. Um, but uh, Graves, uh, uh, whom um, I actually met at one point, um, although I was a child, because my uncle Alex uh, and my father bought the screen rights to I, Claudius, and Claudius the God to make it into a film with Charles Lawton and my aunt Merle Oberon. Um, um, uh, Graves uh, became a very close friend and may have been, almost certainly was, a lover of Siegfried Sassoon's for a time. Mm -hmm. um, and both of them were enormously um, courageous men, uh, both decorated, um, uh, and both survived the war. Um, uh, uh, oh, uh, Wilfred Owen, um, uh, at one point in his own experience, <clears throat> was sent to a hospital in Scotland, Craig Lockhart, 
um, with what was then described as shell shock. Um, uh, <clears throat> and um, there he met Siegfried Sassoon, and they may have become, and I think did become very briefly lovers. So they all are interconnected. One has to imagine that they are all decorated junior officers um, and that they are all poets at the same time rivals and helping each other and trying to get each other published. Um, I think it's a fascinating story to unravel that uh, because these are these are enormously interesting people. Well, you, well you've made it uh, quite an interesting story. I, I, I loaned the galley to my friend uh, Bob Glazer, who uh, made, made a comment to you. He carries around a book of First War World War poets which is about the size of a, an unfiltered pack of camels going back to this day <laughs> at 90, at 95. He carries that around with him. So he's been very, uh, very moved. He's 95, been very moved and very touched by that experience. So what can we what can we say about the war to end all wars? And how do we put it into perspective with the ugliness we're living through today, Michael? Well, first of all, um, there will never be a war that ends war. <laughs> um, Woodrow Wilson was simply wrong about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, but secondly, um, uh, we are um, we are living through certainly difficult times. But um, uh, it we have managed not to plunge into a massive. Uh, and disastrous collapse of everything, as Europe did between 1914 and 1918, and as the world did between 1939 and 1945. Um, On the periphery, bad things are happening, um, and there has not as yet emerged um, uh, in the United States or anywhere else um, a man of, of sufficient strength and vision um, uh, to come to grips with this, but it's still a lot better than the world was between 1914 and 1918. And I think it's important that people understand the degree to which it is possible for what seems like a settled civilization to go over the edge, like a canoe going over Niagara Falls and collapse completely. Um, it's not uh, a far-fetched uh, notion. It has happened twice, once within my lifetime, um, and um, and once within the lifetime of my father and my grandfather. Thanks for joining us, and for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com, and subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terence Kalenter, your American friend in Paris.